Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Harry Houdini, who knows of him? You must know him from history. Yeah, this guy was a crazy guy. He uh, died in October of 1926. Now, Harry's claim to fame was that he was an escape artist, and they tried to do all kinds of things to this guy. Uh, They would seal him in coffins, and he would escape. Then they sewed him up in canvas bags, and he escaped. They locked him in a high-security maximum prison, and somehow old Harry got out. He had once told his wife, Bess, he said to her when he was talking about death, he said, if there is any way out, I will find it. If there is any way out, I will find you and I will make contact with you on the anniversary of my death. Well, after Harry's death, for the first year, every Sunday, every single Sunday between noon and two o'clock, she would sit in front of his photograph with a candle and she waited in silence to receive some sign or some message from her husband on the other side. How sad is that? She did this every Sunday for a year. Then it became a yearly event. After a year, you get tired of that, Steve. So you move on and you make it a yearly event. And she would do it yearly then after that. For 10 years, she would light a candle and sit in front of this picture, sitting in silence, just waiting to hear from him. But after the 10th anniversary of his death, she said this, the Houdini shrine has burned for 10 years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. Because death had laid its grip on Harry Houdini. He couldn't escape it. Hebrews 11 stands in front of us this morning, and one question it asks us right away is, when your days on earth are done, what will you be remembered for? Hebrews 11, of course, it introduces us to men who long ago walked by faith. It it introduces us to a man who actually escaped death. Men who lived with unshakable faith. Join me there as we begin this morning in verse Four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, being dead, still speaks. Remember this argument that we've seen throughout Hebrews, that Christ came with a better sacrifice. And I think this helps us understand why the author chose Abel as the first example of a man with unshakable faith, because Abel had a better sacrifice than Cain. Let's go back to Genesis for a minute and look at the story. You remember that Genesis 4, it it tells us about Adam and Eve's first two sons. And it says this in the text. It says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. 
Now let's just stop and think about what happened here. Cain was a farmer. He was a simple farmer. He brought an offering to God from the fruit of the ground. Abel was a shepherd. He brought a firstborn sheep. It was an animal sacrifice. It was a better sacrifice because it was acceptable to God. Cain's wasn't. Cain became so angry that he killed his brother Abel. Genesis tells us this in verse 8. It says, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. But the Bible actually doesn't really tell us exactly why God rejected Cain's offering. It doesn't actually say it, but here is what we do know. Let's just add up what we do know from Scripture. From the very beginning of God's interaction with man, God has always, always been more concerned about the heart than the actual sacrifice. And I don't think it was just because Cain offered something from the ground, because later on God would accept grain offerings from his people. I actually think this whole thing boils down to Cain's heart. And I think 1 John 3 tells us this. 1 John 3 gives us this understanding. It tells us, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Watch this part. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Yes, Abel offered an animal sacrifice, and perhaps God told both Cain and Abel that it must be an animal sacrifice, but we're not specifically told this in Genesis 4. The real difference seems to be that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. It is the faith behind the act of worship that God is looking for in his people. 1 John tells us that Cain was an evil man influenced by Satan. Abel gave out of a righteous heart sanctified by faith. And that is why we read back in Hebrews that it was a better sacrifice. It was a more excellent sacrifice. Cain was simply doing what a lot of people do today, going through the motions. His worship was not grounded in faith. And with the end of verse 4, it's not that the sacrifice made Abel acceptable to God. Faith in God made him to be declared righteous by God. His faith produced obedience. It is that his sacrifice showed, witnessed, if you will, that he was righteous. God saw his sacrifice as the outward evidence of his faith. And even though Abel died so, so long ago, his faith, it still speaks today. These words are being played off of the words of what God told Abel in Genesis 4, where it says this, And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel's faith still speaks to us, even though he was murdered. I want you to think about this with me. The first victim of a crime in recorded history was a person who followed God. His obedience to God by faith cost him his life. And I think this should speak to us in a lot of different ways because here was a guy whose life was taken, whose life was cut short from man's perspective. But God was still pleased with him because Abel walked by faith. You see, his life was short, but his life was complete, complete in God, in the God whom he served. 
We get this all messed around. We get this turned around thinking that the only goal that we have is a long life. But the word of God is telling us it's not only about how long you live. It's about what you do as a redeemed child of God with the time that God has given you. Do you have unshakable faith? Do you walk and live by faith? Do you redeem the time? Small town prosecutor called his first witness to the stand in a trial. And it was an elderly woman. It was a grandmother, an older lady. And he approached her on the stand and asked and said, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded and said, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams, and I've known you since you were a young, young boy. And quite frankly, you've been a big, big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, and you talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a rising big shot when you haven't the brains to realize that you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes. I know you. Well, how do you recover from that one? The lawyer was a little stunned by this, not knowing what else to do. He pointed across the room and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? Well, she responded, why, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. I used to babysit for his parents. And he also has been a real disappointment to me. He's lazy, he's bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. The man can't build a normal relationship with anyone. And his law practice is one of the most shameful in the entire state. Yeah, I know him. Well, at this point, the judge got a little interested in this conversation. He started wrapping the courtroom into silence and called both of the counselors to the bench. And in a very quiet voice, he said with a threat, if either one of you asks her if she knows me, you will be jailed <laughs> for contempt. The point is, our life is to be a witness to what we believe. Amen. And there is one judge who knows us. There is one judge who knows us all too well. He knows the redemption he's given us. He knows the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. But the need for the believer is to live out what we say we believe. Abel had a different type of reputation that set him apart. And now we see the same thing with Enoch. Let's take a look. Verse 5. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. How cool is that? And was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Oh, I wish Genesis told us more right here. I really do. Genesis doesn't tell us a lot on this story. It just says in chapter 5, verse 24, here's what it says. It says, and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That's about all it says. Now, it's easy to understand why the example of Enoch was given. Enoch was very, very popular to the Jewish people. Jewish traditions, you know, the Jews and all their traditions, they kind of piled on to some of their beliefs about Enoch to the point that a book called First Enoch was written, which was thought to be by the Jews a record of the visions that Enoch received. Now, this book, it's not canon, it's not scripture, but this book became so popular that even Jude quoted from it in Jude 14. So here's what we can actually say from scripture. Enoch was a righteous man, and he had the privilege of not experiencing death. Jude just tells us that Enoch was a prophet 
and who foresaw the coming judgment of God. And God took him away. Literally, the text says that God translated him. Enoch was translated from here, from an earthly life to a heavenly life. Now, he's not the only one. You remember Enoch is joined by Elijah. These are the two Old Testament saints who never died. In 2 Kings 2, we see that Elijah didn't die. God took him up to heaven in a whirlwind. But Enoch, he was the first man to escape death. Something that is actually, if you take the time this afternoon or evening to go home and read Genesis 5, it's beautifully illustrated in Genesis 5. Because Genesis 5 is referred to as the graveyard chapter. It's a depressing chapter to read. All throughout the chapter, we read the words, and he died, and he died. Repeatedly, someone was born, he lived, he had children, and then he died. And that's what you see over and over again. But there's one exception there in verse 24. And it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Scripture tells us that Enoch lived for 365 years and that he walked with God, listen to this, for 300 of them. Let that hit you for a second. Not just that he lived 365 years, but 300 of those years are described by a life of faith. Before the flood, the earth's environment enabled people to live longer. Enoch lived to be 365 years old. But at this time, you got to remember, his lifespan was actually short. Enoch's son went on to live to be 969 years old. Enoch's instant transfer from earth to heaven, it is what believers will experience when Christ returns at the rapture for the church. We are told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that believers at that time will not experience death, will be taken up to meet the Lord, and from there he will escort us back to heaven to be with him. And I don't think this point should be missed as we look at this scripture, because it would have been a reminder for the first century believers that Christ might return for them, even as they walk through those difficult problems. And so the expectation, the instruction was to keep looking up, keep living for Jesus Christ, knowing that he could return, keep living in obedience in light of the imminent return of Christ. Now God chose, God chose to take Enoch without dying. Because Enoch, he lived by faith. He was a righteous man. How he lived pleased God. His faith honored God. In other words, Enoch kept his mind, his heart, and his focus on the eternal things of God. He lived during an age of corruption, but he stood out as a righteous man. He showed his faith by how he lived out his walk with God. It was faith in a God that he could not see that controlled Enoch's life. But notice the subtle wording here in the middle of the verse. Enoch was taken away and he was not found. In other words, it's saying people were looking for him, but he was gone. People were looking and he was gone. And I think he was one of these believers that when the Lord took him, people realized that they just had a giant in the faith with them, but he was gone. And once he was gone, they knew how much he would be missed because Enoch walked with God. The days in which he lived were evil. This was in the closing generations before the flood. But he kept his life pure. 
Genesis tells us he raised a family in those dark days. His life of faith would have been treated with contempt by the other people. But his faith would have kept him in step with God and out of step with the world. Then one day Enoch was taken to heaven and he was seen no more. Now think about this. Abel died a violent death. Enoch never died. You see, God has a different plan for different people. Verse 6 in Hebrews. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's a police exam from London. It listed out a possible scenario. They were supposed to respond with how they would react to it. Here's the scenario they were given. You are on patrol in outer London when there's an explosion in a gas main on a nearby street. When you investigate, you find that there's a large hole that has been blown open with a van overturned nearby. And inside the van, there's a strong smell of alcohol. Both the man and the woman inside are injured. You recognize the woman as the wife of your divisional inspector. A passing motorist stops to offer you some help, and you realize that he's a man that's wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, a man runs out of a nearby house, shouting that his wife is expecting a baby, and that the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. And another man is crying for help, having been blown into an adjacent canal by the explosion, and he can't swim. Then the exam said this, Bearing in mind the provisions of the Mental Health Act, describe in a few words what actions you would take. Well, the officer, he thought about it for just a second, and he picked up his pen, and here's what he wrote. I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. I think sometimes we would like to do this in the Christian faith. Let's be honest. I think sometimes we would like to do that. But fear of the future fear of our problems that we have in life, that is not what pleases God. Faith pleases God. But sometimes as Christians, we allow our fear to paralyze us from serving the Lord, from living with confidence in Him and stepping out on faith. This is what the Hebrew believers wrestled with. And in order to correctly understand verse 6, you have to recognize this. It's written to Hebrew believers. This is not about eternal salvation. This is not about our redemption. This is actually telling the believer that, yes, you must believe God exists, that there is a true and living God, but it needs to be more if you want to live to please God. If you want to live with unshakable faith, you need to believe that God rewards those who walk with him. God rewards the faithful in his kingdom, and it's based on his character, that he is all that he claims to be, that he will do all that he has promised, and he will respond exactly as he said in his word. The Hebrew believers were faced with the temptation to abandon their hope. The Hebrew believers wanted to turn back from Christ. And the author is saying God rewards those who continue to seek after him. Literally, the wording here is those who draw near to him. Not like the believer who turns back from their God. Not like the Christian who gives very little thought in their life of walking with God. You see, faith has confidence in God, confidence in who he is. 
Faith is to be the bedrock of our Christian lives. You see, God wrote this entire chapter down to show us that without faith, we can't please him. It's an absolute requirement that if the believer is going to live in fellowship with God to please God, it has to be by faith. Let's say it like this. Nothing you do in the Christian life will mean a thing if it's not done in faith. God is calling us as Christians to be open with him, to live according to his word, walking with him step by step throughout life. And our faith in God, it will grow as we continue to walk in fellowship with him. Has anybody ever seen one of these? This is the African Impala, the African Impala. My neighbor actually has one of these mounted on his wall. They're an incredible animal when they're not mounted on a wall. They can jump to a height of over 10 feet and cover a distance of over 30 feet. But these amazing animals can be kept in any zoo with just a simple three-foot fence. And here's the reason why. These animals will not jump if they cannot see where their feet are going to land, where their feet are going to fall. And I was thinking about this this past week. I think a lot of Christians do the same thing. You see, we always want to know what's ahead of us, even if it's not for us to know. We like to get ahead of God. And so faith is the ability to trust what we cannot see. And with faith, we are to be free from worry, free from fear. Why? Because we trust God, knowing that God will always direct our steps in his time. I'll tell you what faith looks like. Faith is when Christians finish their lives still growing, still learning, still serving. Faith is when husbands and wives stay faithful to each other until death do us part. Faith is when young people refuse to give in to peer pressure and stay pure until marriage. Faith is when we honor God at work. Faith is when pastors and ministry leaders stay passionate about their ministry until their last dying breath. Faith is when church members weather through those rough patches in any church life and they stay continuing to walk in God's love with God's people. You see, faith is trust. Trust that God's word, God's instruction for our lives is true. And without faith, you cannot please God. Now here comes our man Noah, verse 7. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. It required faith to believe God in things not seen. We read in Genesis chapter 6 just how bad it was then, and it should remind us a lot of today. You see, Genesis 6 teaches us in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then we go on to read in verse 13 of Genesis 6, where it says, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. It required faith to live in a culture that mocked him for 120 years. It required faith because no one was sitting there cheering him on, saying, Go ahead and build this thing. Keep doing it. You can do it. 
While he built the ark, life around him continued on. The world continued on. There wasn't any obvious signs to the people that this big sudden destruction would come. It required faith because no group of people followed after him, thinking it was a good idea to build this gigantic ark. It required faith because he built this boat on dry ground. It required faith because there had never been a flood. He didn't have people outside his family praying for him. He didn't have a prayer group. He didn't have people joining him, praying for him as he sat there for 120 years building a boat. There were no weather forecasters back then predicting rain. But Noah believed the warning that came from God, that the heavens would pour out water and that the fountains of the deep would open up. And he believed that God would bring the animals two by two to him, just as he was promised. It required faith to preach to the unbelievers for 120 years, telling the people that God was going to send a flood to destroy the world. And no one ever listened. Noah simply believed God. He took God at his word. Noah was moved with godly fear. He understood that there's a sovereign God in heaven. But the number of people on the earth who remembered the God of creation had dwindled down by this point to just one family. That's depressing. But Noah continued to believe even though he couldn't see the outcome. He didn't see the flood until it actually came. He listened to the warnings of God and he continued to believe. He built the ark by faith. His faith saved him from the destruction of the flood and he became an heir of righteousness. Noah could have taken those 120 years that it took to build that ark and he could have done a lot of different things with those 120 years. I mean, that is a lot of time. But he chose to say, hey, I'm not going to live for today. I'm going to prepare for the things that God said are coming. And in his mind, he heard the warning of God. His heart was moved with fear and he obeyed what God told him to do. When the entire world, think of it this way, when the entire population of the world lacked faith, Noah and his family believed. Now, what was his reward? A new world after the flood, a brand new world after the flood. This has been a theme in the book of Hebrews, the world to come. And by the mercy of God, Noah was able to save his own family. The world rejected God, but his faith condemned the world because as he built the ark, it passed judgment on people who rejected God. His obedience to God condemned their disobedience. But look at that beautiful phrase with me, if you would, at the end of verse 7. It says, Noah became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Just be careful in the text. It's not that obedience caused him to become righteous. God's righteousness is imputed to his people. When we come to faith, his faith was in the God who would judge the world. In Genesis 6, it actually tells us that Noah was a just man and that Noah walked with God before he built the ark. Faith came first. God's righteousness came first. Then Noah went and built the ark. But his obedience meant that he would inherit the reward. See, Noah stepped into the ark and the handful of people who believed stepped in with him. 
And if you want to leave a legacy with your life, let it be like this. When your days on earth are done, let it be said that you were a person, you were a man, you were a woman, someone who walked with God. See, Hebrews is teaching us the same thing. It's saying that the dark day of judgment is coming again, once again upon this world, not this time with a flood, but there will be a day of judgment. And let our faith be with the men of old who have gone before, who stood on the solid promise of God's holy, perfect word, willing to leave behind all, all that this world offers. English author H.G. Wells he was famous for a number of different science fiction novels, stories like some of these you've heard of, The Time Machine, The Invisible Man, The War of the Worlds. Of course, you've heard of that one. He wrote another one, a short story called The Country of the Blind. And stick with me on this story because it's going somewhere. It's about a valley in Ecuador where it's pretty much impossible to get to, but it's a beautiful, beautiful valley. And in this valley, a strange disease has hit the people. And everyone in this valley is blind. And after 15 generations of this blindness, no one could remember having sight. No one remembered the beautiful colors of the valley or even the outside world. Finally, a man from the outside, a man who could see, he literally fell down into their midst. He had fallen off of a high cliff and survived only to stumble into their foreign country. When he realized, when he got into this valley and realized that everyone there was blind, he remembered the old saying, the old adage, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So he thought this might not be too bad. And at first he tried to several times tell them about sight, tell them about what it is to see. He said to them, look here, people, there are things you do not understand in me. The few times that anybody would actually listen to him, they sat as he did his best to tell them what it was to see, but they never believed him. They thought he was absolutely crazy. Well, as these stories go, the man fell in love with a girl there and the girl's father went to a doctor to talk about him. But the doctor offered some hope. He told the father that there was good news because with reasonable certainty, that's all they ever tell you at the doctors, with reasonable certainty, they could cure him completely. All they had to do was a simple and easy surgery. They would just take out his eyes. They would remove his eyes. But the girl and the father wanted to know if this would make him sane, if this would make him fit in with the rest of the people and end all of this foolish talk about sight. The doctor assured them that this would help him to conform. And so our traveler would be allowed to marry the girl if he was willing to submit to the operation. But now what do you do? Now what do you do? He was so in love that he meant to fully go to a lonely place where the meadows were just blooming with beautiful white flowers and stay there until the hour of his sacrifice had come. But he walked that morning, and as he lifted his eyes, he saw the beauty of the morning, and he saw the beauty of God's creation, and then he realized something. Hear me on this. He realized that even though he was in love, the blind world in this valley was no more than a pit of sin. And so the man fled, escaping the country of the blind with his life. You guys, this is where we live. This is where we live. We live in the country of the blind, where the people are proud of their science, sure of their health, sure of their medicine, completely unaware of the light. 
It's not only pitiful to witness, it's deadly. But you see, the problem is that some of us have fallen a little too in love with this world. Jesus said, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because why? Their deeds were evil. You see, Jesus had his own name for the country of the blind. Do you know what he called it? He called it the world. Now, Abel, Abel approached God with faith and it cost him his life. Noah lived in the country of the blind. Enoch lived his life in the country of the blind. And like them, we have a choice today and every day. We can either settle in or we can live with unshakable faith that God has given us sight to be able to live for the world that is yet to come. See, I would rather walk with God than walk in this world because to walk with God is to know God not just simply as my Redeemer, but knowing Him more as my Sovereign Lord. The more you know God, the more you will have faith in Him, the more you will learn of His character to know what brings Him honor and to know what brings dishonor. For the believer, this is getting to know Him better than the day before. And as your faith grows, it leads to obedience. It leads to a humble submission to the Sovereign Creator. This is how God designed us. It's how he designed us to be his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. To walk with God is to honor him. It leads us to worship him. You see, our faith is made stronger in the worship of God. Worship does something for the soul that nothing else can do. To walk with God helps us to look forward to his coming. To walk with God, it demonstrates our love for God. It helps us to obey him even when others don't. It helps us to live for him even when our lives and the path he's taking us on don't make any sense. And joy, joy is found for the believer as we step day by day with the creator with unshakable faith in him, knowing that the day is coming when he will take us home. Paul said it like this in Colossians 1, and we're going to close with this. Paul told the believers that he prayed that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy. Notice what he wrote next. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. To God be the glory, great things he's done, amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return 